Ohio Police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is an old friend and professional colleague, Anne G. Fellers, Mason. And and first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. And let's, uh, even before I tell them about you, let's tell them about your name. How do you spell it with the G Fellers and Dash Mason and all that? Tell us about that. It's intriguing. Uh, well, uh, the G Fellers part is actually uh, Germanic in origin. And it used to be, at some point in our family history, uh, much longer, but then it got shortened and that's why there's a, an apostrophe in there between the, the G and the S. And then the Mason part's my, my married name. So I took a complicated last name and made it even more complicated. <laughs> yes. That's how I like it. <laughs> and, and you live in Jonesboro, Tennessee with your husband and yes. what else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in Jonesboro. Um, we're both um, theater people and history people and... We've got a, you know, two cats that keep us pretty well occupied because they're not the best of friends, so. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. All right. Enough of this personal chat. <laughs> I do want to tell you more about Anne, but her name is fascinating, I always thought. In any case, back to Anne G. Fellers Mason. She is a playwright, and, and she wrote the play Stealing Lincoln, which I directed, we think, back in 2013 or 14 or so in Waynesboro, Virginia, which has now grown into the Wayne Theater, thanks to a lot of hardworking people like Dr. Claire Myers. Uh, but we did some marvelous things in that small space, for, uh, Stealing Lincoln. It was a fabulous play. I was so moved. They gave me the choices of what I wanted to direct, and the moment I saw the title, I said, that's the one I want. I said, don't you want to read it? No. <laughs> well, it... <laughs> turned out to be a great read and a great performance. But um, more about Anne and less about me. Since 2008, Anne has worked for the Heritage Alliance of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. Now, I know that geography, but tell us something about that region. Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. What do they have in common? Yeah. Well, uh, they share a great history. 
uh, all the way dating, you know, predating the, the Civil War, mm. and they share like the Appalachian you know, culture, yes, and heritage. They are also they share a border, do they not? Yes, they do share a border. It's very true. Most people don't, especially uh, we Northern Virginians and DC people. We don't realize how far west the Commonwealth of Virginia goes, but it does share quite oh, yeah. quite a good sized border with Tennessee. Anyway, moving on, this this place where you work, the Heritage Alliance of North East Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. We're going to ask you to tell us what you do there exactly, but it's a it's a small nonprofit that works to preserve the history and cultural heritage of the Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia region which is, I think, most Americans, well, East Coast and West Coast anyway, uh, kind of write off. They don't think of it often as being a cultural place, but it's an enormously hist- historic region. Uh, now, uh-huh. Anne has earned her bachelor's degree in theater and history from Mars Hill University in 2007, her Master of Fine Arts in History from East Tennessee State University in 2013, and her Master of Fine Arts in Playwriting 2016. So she obviously loves being a master. So (laughs) tell us, Anne, what do you do specifically at the Heritage Alliance of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia? project coordinator, which uh, really means that most of my duties fall on that part of the contract that says, you know, other duties as deemed necessary or assigned. Mm, gotcha. <laughs> but I, I help cultivate educational programs. I help design exhibits for our museum. Um, I do outreach where I go to other communities and, you know, help them with programs they're developing uh, or, you know, help them like I, I visited an old mill in uh, Nicholsville, Virginia, hmm. uh, last year, and they were working on creating interpretive panels for the inside of the mill. And I, you know, helped them with with that process. So I just, you know, do a, a variety of, of jobs. And then, you know, some days the, the toilet overflows, and I take care of that too. Because you know, we're a very small organization. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Small nonprofits now uh, yes. perhaps uh, feeling the pinch more than ever, but we'll get back to all that political stuff. I want to stress, I'm so impressed with Anne for a number of reasons, and one is her love of history, which I share with her, and her uh, experience in theater, which I also share with her. And, and as I mentioned earlier, she was involved, and she'll tell us about the university that sponsored the program and why she got in it, which I find very funny. Um, only because of the um, the requirements of the play. In any case, she met the requirements and then some. It was the play's title was Stealing Lincoln. Tell us a little bit about that and about our experience uh, as playwright and director and and seeing this come to life, Stealing Lincoln. Yeah, well, um, Stealing Lincoln was a play I wrote for the Red Eye Coast to Coast uh, two-minute play festival. And that whole festival originated out of um, the Playwrights Lab at Holland University uh, around Roanoke, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it was created by uh, members, students in the program, uh, specifically for Holland's uh, playwrights. Mm-hmm. And of course, it had to be, you know, the requirement for it had to be, you know, a, a 10 minute play that had a variety of characters, because, you know, all these plays are being performed largely in community or, like, high school theaters. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it had to be um, family-friendly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> due to that audience base as well. 
And I love history and theater, and I love any time I can put the two of them uh, together. I think you know, history is naturally dramatic and lends itself to theater. And one of the like little snippets of history that I've been fascinated by was the attempt to you know steal Abraham Lincoln's body mm-hmm. um, in the late 1800s by this group of uh, you know of course they were they were gentlemen and they failed miserably and quite hilariously. But what was great was you know just due uh, to the nature of community casting and who shows up to be a part of the event, mm-hmm. um, the cast was all women mm-hmm. and it was just fantastic um, to see it uh, presented with, with that angle. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that, obviously. Any director appreciates a, a playwright liking their work. Of course, I loved your work. And the thing that I said when I was referring to about being funny how and why you entered uh, this play is because I once asked, and why just 10 minutes? And she said, well, that's what they wanted. <laughs> You have to love that. Well, it was it is a magnificent play, and yes, you're right. The, I cast all women because that's who showed up, and and uh, I think the actors did an in, incredible job. I'm a very exacting oh, yeah. director, and the play was so. And of course, I I, I knew of its uh, historic basis. Uh, you know, it's a true story. There were people who tried to steal Lincoln's body. Um, it's uh, well, anyway. But I loved doing it, and I loved the space. It, the space was a challenge uh, because it was before the Wayne Theater became the Wayne Theater up the street, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a nice brick building. I, th- I think they renovated a, or reconstructed an old movie house, I believe, or vaudeville house, or combination thereof. And it's now a beautiful place. Got a nice private tour by the man who sort of produced the plays we did there in that storefront, uh, Dr. Claire Myers. He's retired now, but he uh, he took me through the brand new facility, and it's it's amazing. We have to come and do a full-length play there sometime. So, history. I'm fascinated again with this area that I don't know as much about. Tell me about Tennessee and why... You live there, you work there. What's up with uh, Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia for you? Well, I mean, what I really appreciate about this area is just the, the community spirit. I will say the people here work together. They do a lot to, to help each other. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them are extremely rich in history that very much predates the Revolutionary War. Mm. Uh, so then, of course, you know, Tennessee's name as a whole, the volunteer state, comes out of the Revolutionary War and the Battle of Kings Mountain and the Over Mountain Men. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this like very, very independent set of people who you know take care of each other. Like it's a very strong community here, and the people here are extremely interested in, in preserving this, you know, these stories mm-hmm. and also preserving uh, their heritage when it comes to music. You know, with like bluegrass and, and country music. Yes. Um, when it comes to the arts with, you know, pottery and, and craftsmanship and uh, just a, a multitude of, you know, folk tales and, and folklore that, you know, come from this area. And, you know, some of it, of course, has unfortunately fallen by the wayside, but you still have a, a, a good core group of people who are dedicated to preserving it in some form or fashion and saving it for, for future generations. As you say, its history precedes the establishment of the United States of America. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's exactly so there's 
I love it when the people themselves in their area, and I know this is one of your both expertise and um, and focus that you like to involve um, the local history and the the people who live in the middle of that history and want them to be involved in being a part of preserving and protecting and um, and you seem to have found quite a hub there in uh, in Tennessee and and Virginia, would you say? Oh yes, no definitely. I mean, we you know I create little history based plays all the time, and anytime we do it, of course, as a cast is all community actors volunteer, and they they eat it up, and they always want to know more, and they always come mm. to me. They're like, where can I go to learn more about this person or this time period? You know what? I want to know more. Mm-hmm. What is it like for someone in southwest Virginia or northeast Tennessee coming to the mid-Atlantic states? Uh, as I said, there are students who come to University of Virginia that I've, I've never met, but I hear about them from the various professors that I know at UVA. What, what do you think? Is it, is it a culture shock? Is it, what, what is it? Um, I mean, I think there's you know, culture shock anytime you go anywhere that's uh, different from uh, what you're used to seeing every day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always this persistent perception about this region that, you know, we're all backwoods hicks and <laughs> all this. And that's, Sorry, that's I didn't mean to like imply that. Years. That's not what I think at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah, but that's gone on for years. It's not a new thing. It's, it's just a stereotype that's going to keep uh, persisting. But I think, you know, when people come here, they realize obviously that's not who we are and I, I will say we have a lot of people who m- move here and retire here all yes. the time from Florida and from New York and from, like, Boston. Uh, we have people who come here in museums all the time who are like, I drove through here once and decided this is where I would retire when I got to the point in my life when I could retire. And these people come here and they, you know, become members of the community. Mm-hmm. And I see them at community events and you know, see them uh, helping out and volunteering wherever they can. So, like I said, just, that's the thing I always love most about this place is just how, you know, welcoming the people are and just how they're so willing to, to build a community together. You know, I have to tell you, I had a number, and I mean like six different neighbors in Florida. I never was a fan of Florida. I lived there for a while because there was so much work for me there, but... Um, all six of them, not not at the same time, but periodically, moved out, and they said they were leaving Florida because it always was the same, and they wanted something that had a change of seasons but still had this nice, friendly, real American, down-to-earth, appreciate, you know, the blessings of nature and God and so forth. And they all suggested they were going to that the very area where you work, the nor- northeast Tennessee yeah. and southwest Virginia. It was when, oh, by yeah. the way, when this happened, and this is back in uh, oh, 2000, when this happened that I became aware of that geography. I was one of those New Yorkers who didn't know those states touched. <laughs> and then I, I became aware. So it is, it is quite an attraction and quite historical. Through your work, I know, Anne, you you combine your research skills with your playwriting skills, and you want to create local history-based plays. Tell us about that. Why why are you driven by that, and exactly what does that mean? How does it build an audience? Tell us. Yeah, well, the benefit of local history 
history that it plays, of course, is it allows um, its history to, to reach larger audiences and, you know, it does educate the people here about their history because, you know, some people know it, like, hands down, are very familiar with it. And then we, I have people I encounter all the time who are like, I just didn't know all this history was here mm-hmm. or I didn't know that happened here. So it, you know, it shares these moments and then also, you know, these people who lived here and built lives here and struggled through very difficult times here. So I, I try to honor their stories and their memories and share their stories because there's so much history to to be learned mm. about, you know, the people who lived through, like, the Civil War and yes. suffrage and civil rights and other movements here on the local level. Because mm-hmm. it, it makes the, you know, the big national picture, it makes it more personal to people living today. And you can see how one feeds into the other and it helps you understand that history isn't static, that it's, you know, it's real people living, you know, real lives. Mm-hmm. And anytime it can share that and help someone to, to realize that and make that connection, I feel like I've, I've done a, a, a great job and a great service. You know, I, re- I really love hearing this because far too often my my experience, I've primarily I've lived in um, big cities, you know, New York City, D.C., etc., but uh, I still do, as a matter of fact, but... I, I can remember, because I've always loved history, so I walk around, I go see, you know, the Statue of Liberty or uh, the Washington Monument, and, and I do those things, and I don't need the big tour because I've read about them and I love them. I just want to go and sit and, uh, you know, walk up the steps or around and stare at it from different angles. I just feel that connection. And too often, though, I, I find that um, my my friends are not as interested and they I think they still have that same view that history is memorizing a bunch of dates I mean I didn't love history when I was in high school and uh, and probably because of the way you know that it was taught but when you really when you really live history I've met uh, uh, Justin Serafin who's uh, one of the directors at the Preservation Virginia and I should introduce you to as a matter of fact um uh, but in any case, we're going to go to break soon. But I, I, I just want to say, you have a museum. Is that what's happening there? Uh, we actually have two museums. Ah. That's kind of where we're based out of. And we're actually helping the town um, create a third uh, railroad-based museum and an old restored depot. So, uh, yeah, we have museums. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, that's quite something. It's not a huge place, and you're talking about a third museum. We're going to take a break mm-hmm. uh, and come back and talk more about the museum aspect and then more about plays and politics and history with Ann G. Fellers Mason, my guest today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. It started in 1993 with pure evil. Three eight-year-old boys found hogtied and butchered in West Memphis, Arkansas. Three teenagers arrested, clearly drunk on sinister music and devil worship, exuding satanic presence. One even confessed. Kill them, cried the community. Guilty, said the police, the prosecutor, the judge. 
Four documentary films tell of the same horrifying events. Paradise Lost, Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills was the first, a standalone masterpiece that provides incredible insights from every side. The police, the families, the prosecutors, the judge, and the defendants. A simple story no more. Guilt settled. Truth in question. Two sequels update the story. New revelations, new questions, a miscarriage of justice, likely. Did we need a fourth film? Absolutely. The first tells the hideous tale in real time as it unfolds. With the benefit of hindsight, West of Memphis fills in the rest of the story. The real story. Ultimately, the West Memphis Three were released after 18 years on an Alfred plea, which asserts innocence while acknowledging damning evidence. Face-saving for the system and justice for none. Paradise Lost and West of Memphis. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is playwright and history lover Anne G. Fellers Mason. And Anne has a number of master's degrees. Perhaps I shouldn't call you history lover. Are you a historian? Yeah, I'm a historian. Well, there you go. Then welcome to our guest, Angie Fellers Mason, who, unlike me, a history buff, she is a historian. But we both love history in any case. We were talking about, we, we switched to, toward the end of the last segment, the museums. I knew you were working with museums and and in and exciting and the the local uh, population in southwest virginia northeast tennessee to their own local history i know that's a personal goal of yours and we'll talk about that with your plays a bit later in your politics but I, I, so i knew you were doing museum but you say you're working on the third museum in what is relatively a small town yes uh yeah we're you know uh which is a town of around 5,000 people. Wow. So we get a lot of tourists. You know, we're a tourist-based uh, industry here, so part of the reason for the uh, growth of museums here. Mm-hmm. And, and you get a lot of tourists. You, we were talking about how much people love the area. Mm-hmm. Well, and we also have the, the National Storytime Festival based out of here. And... So the first weekend in October, when it's the full festival, we're easily a, an area of 10,000 plus. So it, it doubles our population for wow. that, that period of time. Well, I was going to ask you, what are some of the tourist attractions? And that's certainly one. Oh, yeah, definitely, you know, um, there's the storytelling here, which is a, you know, a deep, long-standing Appalachian tradition. You have our, our three, you know, two, three, three museums that are history-based, but also we have delicious food here. There's a wonderful farmer's market mm. um, community. We have a great local repertory theater that does, like, essentially Broadway-style productions in a very tiny space. Wow. Um, but then also the history is a, is a big draw here. And, you know, we have, like, tours that we offer that take people through and help them learn the history more. And then we also have tours of our old historic cemeteries, so... That's a, a draw as well. Fantastic. Now, I know one of your biggest goals in life is always to be sure that history never repeats itself. When I read that, I w- promised myself I'd ask, what do you mean by that? Um, well, there's uh, a theory that you know, history 
does repeat itself. And I don't know so much of its history, but people, because you know, people make history, and we like to operate in, in patterns, especially when it comes to you'll have a, a progressive arc, and then you have people who react to that by being scared of it, scared of the change, frightened of what's happening, and so then things will swing the other way in a more conservative arc. Mm. And you, know, you can trace these back and forth throughout history. And, you know, I feel if people know the history and read it, they can kind of understand better what's happening. Like, I'll just touch real briefly on, you know, of course, the integration issue that's happening right now, which isn't new to the United States. Throughout its history, the United States has barred immigrants from various countries for various reasons, mm-hmm. um, most of it fear-based. And... You can read a book and see that none of those programs worked. They just led to more violence, more confusion. They were not successful in their intended goals, and they were eventually overturned because of this. Yes. I just know people would possibly just pick up a history book and read it. They understand that. You know, it's it's so true. When I I have friends who know that I do a great deal of political writing and and often try to connect the, the dots between where we are and where we've been and and the fork in the road of where we might go. But I I tried to I I find myself trying to hit a balance between don't worry about it, we've been here before and uh, and having that encourage people as opposed to depress them because people respond differently to having um things like the Japanese internment come up and and of course people a lot of my guests know very much about World War Two. I, I had a guest the other a couple of weeks ago uh, Lynn Rainville who is um, a PhD in studying World War One so you know and she told me all about Lynchburg and Lunchburg and all the various things that were going on and so history you, you're right it seems it seems people as in humanity, are in a in a cyclical cycle, and the pendulum keeps swinging, you know, from extreme to extreme. Um, what, what do you what do you think about that? Because is that what you're sort of talking about? That we just seem to make the circle all over again without veering off to something new and better? Um, yeah, I do feel like the the circle. You know, it goes in a cyclical manner. I will say, though, with every cycle, or if that's the best way to describe it, that there is progress made, and there are steps forward. Uh, now, sometimes when you turn around to the other part of the circle, you lose some of that, but it, it, it's never completely undone, because mm-hmm. it can't be. Mm-hmm. So there is progress, but, you know, it's sometimes that old adage of, you know, was it like two steps forward and one step back? Yes. Well, I I think we now, we are in the midst in 2017 of opportunity, I'd like to think. I do think that much of what President Trump has done and is doing actually will rally the very people who need to start being full citizens, who need to start acting like citizenship is not a spectator sport, as Tom Hartman says. Uh This is a responsibility. And if you, like the worst of it, those who don't vote at all, you can have an amazing impact on where the country goes. What are, I don't want to get uh, too deep in the weeds of your personal politics, that's your business, but, well, I tell you what, let's connect it this way. 
what do you think is going to happen to the arts and the humanities and education and history, all those things that you are doing, that you're filling your life to give back to the community, how are they going to be impacted by uh, Trump administration? and the National Endowment for the Arts are facing you know, the most intense pressure they've, they've faced in, in a while in mm. regards to not just having their funding you know, somewhat cut, but being com- cut completely as existing programs. And you know, they've faced these challenges before, but this is a, you know, a, one of the more serious ones. Mm-hmm. And you know, cutting funding to, to the arts, to schools, sort of, it, it doesn't stop the theater, it doesn't stop people doing history, it doesn't completely stop any of this, but you know what it does is it hurts those smaller organizations that just can't do it on their own, but are sharing wonderful history and doing wonderful theater mm-hmm. um, for their local community and their local people. And it, it, it's going to drive a lot of stuff underground, which is, is where theater will go and hide sometimes mm. during... Uh, times of increased uh, pressure or censorship. So some things will go underground. It it won't kill anything completely, but there are a number of institutions that will be hurt, you know, uh, programs that just won't be able to survive because they've lost this funding source because you're talking about programs that struggle on a a shoestring budget already. So it'll be devastating for for them if it comes to fruition. And, and, we can, I think, uh, be uh, inspired by the fact that the Roman Empire tried very much to replace good Greek theater with uh, lions eating Christians and yes. gladiators, you know, <laughs> and yet theater survived that. So I, I say that tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it is true. You are absolutely right. Many, many, many times people have tried to deny the value of uh uh, arts and humanities. I don't know why, but of course, I, being who I am, I wouldn't be able to get that anyway. I, I don't know what. The, I don't know why all of these disciplines. I was never a great science student by any means. I think I did terribly in chemistry, but I see the value of science and even the creativity of science when oh, we, yeah. you know, when we stop denying these. Uh, I know Dr. George Bloom, for instance, has been a guest. He's doing cellular experiments that are close to making a difference on how we treat Alzheimer's. And, and it's, it's a real possibility in the next two years not to, uh, not to cure it in the way that we've been approaching it in the past, but he's learned something that he can sort of in- intersect on the road and stop that one thing, and it prevents the... Uh, if it's all successful, we'll prevent the symptoms from ever showing up. So it's oh, like, wow. yes, exactly. That's what I said when I first heard. But these, all of us, the diversity of, uh, dif- uh, of talent as well as appearance, the diversity of our specialties and our loves and what we create and give back to the community, uh, whether it's of the world, nation, or, or small town, Somehow, we've got to work together, and the humanities, let's talk a bit about the National Endowment of the Humanities. I know you're very much aware of that and what uh, is m- might happen. They are, the humanities are everything, are they not? Uh-huh. Tell everything. us. Everything, I mean, uh, you know, just the 
the definition, uh, when you to drop off the B is like, you know, potentially the study of mankind and what it means to be human, which is everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, when you add the B, it's, it's history and philosophy and ethics and religion and psychology and sociology and language. It's, it's uh, you know, like you said, everything. Mm-hmm. And and to cut, um, I mean, EPA has is a different tactic. They they are eliminating certain things from the White House uh, website, including the judiciary branch, as though if you don't put it on your website, the court system disappears. But but the art, but they won't, and the arts won't, and neither will the humanities, as long as we have people like you, you know, who are on. I think really that grassroots local reinforcement. I of um, the good, the humane, the, the arts, the humanities, the history. Don't let me go on. You save me here, Anne. You tell me what what can what can we do? What can we do in other communities that you're doing in yours? Um, well, you know, we are very fortunate that here in, in Jonesboro, I, I know that even if this program were to get eradicated. Um, the town government here is very dedicated to, you know, the, the arts here and the humanities here. So, kids are will be fine, but I know that's not the case for other uh, places and or other organizations. So there's, um, you know, you can go through like places like the American Association for State and Local History, and they have great resources for humanities organizations across the nation. But they have kind of all the info you need to know to contact a representative um, just to, to get the word out about the importance of the National Endowment uh, for the Humanities and then the, the same thing for the, the National Endowment for the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like Arts in Action and other programs that are, are ways that you can go through there to contact your representative when it comes to preserving that. So mm-hmm. you know, contacting your representative and letting them know why it's important, um, the kind of programs you know, that help fund if you've ever been a part of one of those programs or been to uh, one of those programs or shows and sending postcards, emails, calling. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, finding the local communities and arts places in your community and asking what you just could do to help. Because yes. those places usually always need volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially if they're going to be losing so many funding, they might need even more volunteers yes. asking how you can pitch in and, and help. Absolutely. Those are all great ideas. And I think every time your members of Congress come home, talk to them. You know, we don't have to oh, yeah. agree on everything to agree that we need the arts in our lives. And, and uh-huh. uh, you know, point it out to them because I'll tell you, I've, I've learned that through my visits to the Hill, that it's one thing for sure that members of Congress want more than anything else, and including donations. They want to be reelected, so they need your vote and they listen. As long as you are in the zip code they represent. <laughs> you know, be- before we go, Anne, I'd love to have your perspective as a historian, as a playwright, on the defunding of the arts, of course, and humanities, but but how that ripples out nationally and internationally. What's the impact, do you think, we can expect turning our backs on certain segments of the population, defunding EPA, defunding the arts, defunding the humanities? Is, doesn't that cause a, a, a global reaction? Um, oh, it most certainly does. Um, you know, I think that 
does. It, it, it's just a huge global message, and it, it does not hurt how the rest of the world interprets us. And I know there's some people like, well, who cares how the rest of the world interprets us? But that matters because we're so globally connected now in a level we've never been before. Mm. So it's not like we can just completely isolate ourselves as the, United, as the United States again and not have any other dealings with any other country. That's no longer possible mm-hmm. as, a, as a solution to anything. It, it can't be done. Um, that, that bridge has been crossed long ago. Yes. And we, just for the interest of the globe as a whole, you know, the globe is its own community and it functions better when we can see eye to eye with other countries and we can help, you know, help them to be better uh, in certain areas because it only helps us to be better too. Yes. And, you know, we not only do we have to work together on a local level, but we have to work together internationally and this just uh, completely uh, will, you know, just continue to damage um, the United States standing um, globally. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially, you know, the sciences and math and art, uh, you know, and, and humanities. Uh, you, you know, you might not have artists from here traveling to other countries as much, and you might have other countries who are like, well, we're not going to send our artists to your country exactly. because clearly you don't value this. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. It's, it's like the Canadian prime minister came out and said, well, we will take you. You're welcome in our country. Mm-hmm. It goes... It goes, it's across the board. It is the arts, it is the humanities, it is the sciences, the culture, the diversity, it, it, uh, the politics. Uh, they're not separate. That's the... No. Uh, they're certainly not independent of one another. Um, nor are we independent, as you've said, from the globe. Um, we, we can't be. I mean, there was a time, yes, when countries were more, you know, isolated, and America went through a great phase of isolationism in between the world wars, mm. but... So much has changed since then, and that's just not possible anymore without completely cutting off our nose to spite our face. Exactly. How can we find out more about your museums and and more about the Heritage Alliance of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia so we can visit online, if not in person? Yeah, well, uh, we've got a website. It's at org. And then we're also on Facebook, as you know, the Heritage Alliance of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. And as much as possible, we you know, try to share really good, uh, research-heavy articles on our, our Facebook um, about local history and then also about, you know, how those local plays into the national and, and international. Excellent. Are you getting time to write any more plays? Well, hopefully here soon. <laughs> okay. All right, but you do have plays. You are published, yes? Yes, I am. I've got a couple of works uh, published through Youth Plays. Um, those are for, you know, uh, younger audiences. And then I've got uh, one play published through Poly, uh Coron Press, mm-hmm. which is based out of, of St. Louis. And then I'm always working on new stuff. Okay. And if you ever get around to a full-length play of uh, Stealing Lincoln, let me know. Let me be your first call. (laughs) Well, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure and informative and education to be talking with Angie Fellers Mason today, playwright of Stealing Lincoln, historian, uh, working at the Heritage Alliance of Northeast Tennessee and Southwest Virginia, 
building and reminding and educating and outreaching to uh, local communities all around her museums, a third one on the way. I mean, it's quite a contribution, uh, I think, to American culture. That's the way I feel about it. Okay, Anne? Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for being on the show, and we wish you all the best uh, in everything you do. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Bye now. Stay with us, as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Though there were a lot of shenanigans at play that brought on the Great Recession, few doubt that the unregulated boys-gone-wild attitudes of the financial community were at the core. Margin Call is a star-filled indie production about those shenanigans. Kevin Spacey, Demi Moore, Paul Bettany, Jeremy Irons, and Stanley Tucci all play pieces of a machismo investment banking company riding a wave of money until the tide goes out. They undertake all manner of risks, pushing aside as cowards those who warn of an inevitable crash. Who needs risk management when there are fortunes to be made? But when the music stops, will the guilty ones take their lumps bravely or will they deny responsibility no matter the damage to the innocent? This clever and frightening little thriller doesn't pretend to be a fully accurate disclosure of events that led to the actual disaster. It is, however, a dramatic tale set in a selfish world of destruction, the very one that took the world to the brink. Could it help us avoid a repeat of our financial near collapse? That is up to us, and too much to ask of a movie. Meanwhile, Margin Call is an entertaining and frightening nail-biter. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Missing you and us, too. There was little reason for my grandmama to leave her huge farm to go into town a few miles away for groceries, gasoline, farm equipment, overalls, and newspapers. Now I only go back for the funerals and do hear on the breeze what I've missed. I'm not into romanticizing the past. Believing things, for the most part, are always improving. Until G.W. and Cheney, of course. As long as what's new doesn't obliterate what's been with what's coming round the bend. I don't miss Mayberry or my slumlord friends on Shelter Island, but I do miss New York City neighborhoods, walking city blocks, and being constantly in rehearsals for something. I miss Gypsy and Heinrich, best and worst watchdogs, respectively. Don't miss Dad and Mom so much as it still feels like they're here. But I do miss people who trim their trees back from power lines, so when the winds come, we keep our A.C. I miss hailing a yellow cab for Carol Channing, strolling Midtown with Colleen Dewhurst, and chatting with James Whitmore about the next voice you hear. He said I was too young to have seen it, but while other boys my age were outside playing ball, I was watching old movies on TV. Mr. Whitmore was so proud of the fact that he had made the movie with Nancy Reagan before she met Ronnie. But I told him I would never forget what it felt like when God spoke to him on his radio. I miss that. <laughs> 
I miss taking time to tune up with morning prayers and reel-to-reel Gregorian chant. I don't miss fast cars and curvy roads, for that's still how I relax. I miss Jimmy Stewart and Harvey, Yul Brenner and the American Original Six, Gregory Peck, whom Mom told, my son is an actor too. I never miss Florida, except when I think of hurricanes 250 miles offshore pinning me against the lifeguard chair, streaking back my hair with beach sand, my lips rimmed like a margarita glass, and the ocean some distance away lapping occasionally at my toes, as a seagull above makes no headway because of headwinds. I miss the silence that can only be heard without the din, and I miss people who understand the wisdom in that. I miss Marvine's white boots as much as our drama classes. I miss my voice lessons with Wayne and Ernie, and both the Peabody and Baltimore Opera in the days of George Woodhead and Bill Januzzi, the only man who smoked more cigarettes than my 61-year-old brother, just diagnosed with the lungs of an 80-year-old. I miss him already. For me, missing is more happy memories than sad longing. But I do miss not seeing my best friend Lance Thomas Vining. However, I don't miss the Silver Diner, his favorite dining choice. I do miss my annual trips to Europe, but it was a wonderful career that suspended them, so we make our choices. I miss dates on letters even to find telephone numbers on bills, and I miss sleeping more than five hours a night. But most of all, I miss who we were in the 60s. I miss Abraham, Martin, and John, and Bobby, too. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.